Okay, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can be together today. We thank you and praise you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in creation and in your word and through your Son, Jesus Christ, supremely. Lord, we ask and pray your favor and blessing uh, on this class today that you would be at work. And Lord, we pray for clarity and pray, Jesus, that you would grow and strengthen us in our uh, knowledge of you and our ability to, to share uh, with others what and why we believe it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I want to quickly, if I can, cover some of the stuff that we didn't get to cover last, uh, last time. And so I'm going to try to move through this material fairly quickly um, so that we don't run out of time. Today, we're going to try to talk about the moral argument for God, for God's existence. And then next week, hopefully, talk about the uh, teleological argument for God, maybe the cosmological argument if we have time. Um, and, and I'll explain why these particular arguments in just, a, in just a few minutes. But before we get there, I want to just um, briefly talk about what we didn't get to talk about last time. I wanted to talk about um, what is truth and just mention that as Christians, we believe in a correspondence view of truth. So truth is what corresponds to reality, what really is. So the simplest way to describe that is to say the statement, it's raining, is true if it corresponds to reality outside. Mm -hmm. So because it's sunny and clear right now, the statement, it is raining, would be false because it does not correspond to reality. So truth is what corresponds to what, what really is. And I wanted to point out the fact that this, this correspondence uh, understanding of truth does not mean that the only way we can describe something that is true is if it's literally true. You can still use metaphor, simile, symbols, hyperbole, phenomenological language like the sun is rising or the sun is setting. Um, you can use informal language, metonymy, which is where a part stands in for the whole. There's all these different ways you can, you can speak and still have it correspond to the truth, if that, if that makes any sense. The Bible is true in everything that it affirms because it tells us what is really the case. It tells us what is really true. So, for example, um, there are angels and demons in reality. Even though we don't see them, we know that they exist because God's word tells us that they exist. God's word is true because God is holy. He doesn't lie. So everything he says is the truth. And so um, the truth is objective. It exists apart from what we feel or believe about it. So go back to the it is raining example. Supposing I really, truly believe it is raining. It doesn't really matter how strongly I feel about that. If it's not actually raining, that statement is still false. So truth isn't subjective, it's objective. The other thing I wanted to talk about last week that we didn't get to is the Holy Spirit's role in apologetics. 
And I want to point out three, three specific ways that the Holy Spirit is necessary uh, for apologetics, both for the evangelistic piece of this and also the discipleship piece. Remember that our two sort of goals of apologetics is not simply to help us with evangelism. That's part of it. That's one of our goals. But the other part of, of uh, apologetics is to help strengthen other believers in the faith, including ourselves. So you can think evangelism, and you can think discipleship. And the Holy Spirit is necessary for both, because the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces and converts unbelievers, because um, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. But um, there are three aspects, then, for apologetics and evangelism that are dependent on the Holy Spirit. Number one, the godly lifestyle of the believer is dependent on the Holy Spirit. So remember... Uh, Peter teaches us to persuade unbelievers to give a reason for the hope that we have, yet to do so with uh, gentleness and respect. So we want to complement our communication with a life of genuine godly faith. That itself is dependent on the Holy Spirit. So before we even get to opening our mouths, our own godliness is dependent on the Holy Spirit. But praise God, Peter tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Um, and connected to this is love for other people. Francis Schaeffer said, Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Like, it doesn't matter how right you are. If you have no love, if you have no compassion, if you have no gentleness, if you have no respect the truth that you're communicating becomes ugly. And you end up undermining your own witness. It's also love for other people that moves us to pray for them, moves us to, to want to share truth with them. So that is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Second, the ability to share the gospel with unbelievers depends on the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this. Um, this is a spirit who enables us to speak with clarity, with boldness, as we ought to speak, Acts 4.31, Ephesians 6.20. Paul asks for prayer that God would open up a door for him to share the gospel and that he'd be able to share it with clarity, Colossians 3, uh, excuse me, 4, 3 and 4. So the opportunity, the boldness, the clarity, it depends on the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the response to the things that we share in other people, that is also dependent on the Holy Spirit. We're not going to convert anybody. We're not going to convince anybody. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to, to, has to do that, right? So Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44. We are servants, Paul said, through whom others believe as the Lord assigns to each, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. So the Spirit is the one who unblinds minds, who convinces people, who confirms the truth, who convicts of sin, who changes an unbeliever's heart so they put their faith in Jesus. Now, how does this truth encourage us in the task of sharing what we believe and why we believe it with other people? Well, it encourages us because it doesn't ultimately depend on us. It encourages us to depend on God in all of our efforts, we don't have to have the perfect words. Praise God. Does that encourage anybody? Like, we're never going to have the perfect words. Uh, I feel like in every interaction that you have with a non-believer when you're trying to witness and share the faith, 
you're not going to leave, at least I don't think you should leave, sort of sticking out your chest like, yeah, I nailed it, you know? I think it's more like, Lord, the only way that's going to have an impact is if you work in their heart by the Holy Spirit, Amen. right? Yep. So this leads us to humility, but it also gives us the kind of confidence that we need. Remember we were talking about having confidence without arrogance? How do you do that? Well, that's the confidence isn't in ourselves, the confidence is in the Spirit. It allows us to continue to be humble even as we reach out to people with the truth. It also leads us to the unavoidable conclusion that prayer is necessary for apologetics, that God would help us to live the truth, speak the truth, and convince people of the truth. So that's uh, our review. I know that was quick, but um, we didn't get to talk about that last time. All right. Now I want to move us over to this discussion on uh, the moral argument for God. I want to set this up uh, in this way, just by reminding ourselves of what is apologetics. Apologetics is knowing what we believe and why we believe it and being able to communicate that faithfully to other people. Know what you believe, why you believe it, and to be able to communicate that with other people. Again, our our key verse from 1 Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have, that is in you, right? I want to point out, every Christian is called to do this. This isn't like, when we think of apologetics, oftentimes I think we think that this is for special, elite Christians who are super wise, they know a bunch of information, and they're really good at arguing. That's not it. He doesn't. Peter doesn't say like, hey, now you elite Christians... Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. This is for everybody. This isn't just for special, smart, super smart pastors either. Every pastor is supposed to uh, be able to teach what is sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, and refute or rebuke those who contradict it, right? So every pastor, every Christian should be able to do apologetics. Now, if you think of it as being able to go into a debate, right, and debate on a philosophical level, it becomes overwhelming. But that's not what... Apologetics is, according to the Bible. It's just knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to give a reason for it to communicate that to other people, right? To give a defense of why we believe what we believe. Go. Ultimately, and again, the, the, the passage from First Peter is, first off, the, the context is you are being asked. It's yep. not necessarily that you're going out headhunting, although you can certainly do that, but the context is saying when, when you are asked. The mm-hmm. second is, Give a reason not for the resurrection, not give a reason for Christian doctrine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or mixing of linens in the Old Testament or whatever. <laughs> it's your hope. What is the reason for your hope? And so we understand, well, reason, it's with the heart that we believe, not with the mind. And that's, that's, that's my uh, Achilles heel, is I, I, get, I train myself in arguments and try to persuade via reason, but it's a reason for the hope, and it, it's with the heart that, and so that's the realm of the spirit, not not of me, because the heart is deceitful. All of our hearts are naturally deceitful. We, we they trick us because we're we're sinful, and it's only the Holy Spirit that can overcome that. So, the prophet says, "Rend your hearts, not your garments." I can only tear my heart down to humble myself, and then the Holy Spirit will build me up. Yeah, I would qualify that and say things like the resurrection is intimately connected to our hope, right? So we want to be able to share and answer objections, right? And yes, we believe with our heart, but 
faith always has an object. Yes. It's not just faith. It's faith in something. Yes. And we want to help people see that it's a reasonable faith. Yes. So, yes. And I, I didn't, we haven't talked about this yet in this class. And I wanted to talk about it today. Just, just mention it. I, I want us to be thinking of, of this class as designed more for street-level apologetics. Right? So there, there are people who are, who are philosophers, Christian philosophers, who are answering things at a very deep, very heady philosophical level. That's not what this class is designed for. This class is designed for street-level apologetics. That is, to be able to interact with your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends who are going to ask you questions about your faith, why you believe what you believe, and to be able to answer those things at, like, on the street level, ground level apologetics. Does that make sense? Yes. Back of the napkin kind of stuff so that you're having a conversation. Like, Keith, you shared the other day, you've been having conversations with different coworkers, right? Similar, I've had conversations with my coworkers as well. Of course, now they're all pastors. But back in the day, that wasn't always the case. Um, so we're not trying to train ourselves for a formal debate. That's not our goal. We want to do, uh, just to be able to do, to share a compelling reason, reason for our faith in conversation with people. <laughs> we don't want this to be like, now sit down and we're going to have a deep conversation about the Lord. Um, no, it should be natural. We should be able to talk about these things in conversation with people in a way that is natural, not, not super awkward. All right. Now, how does the moral argument then for God connect with knowing what we believe and why we believe it? Well, here are some things that we believe. We believe that truth is objective. It applies to all people in all places and all times. That God has established moral good and evil. That God has established and revealed a standard for right and wrong. That all humans have a conscience and at root know that there is such a thing as good and evil, and that this knowledge points to God, yet they suppress this truth in unrighteousness. These are things that we believe as Christians. These are things that the Bible teaches us. Now, how does that help us to do street-level apologetics? Well, this is a subject, morality, good and evil, is a subject that is very easily raised. It comes up quickly, easily, in conversation with non-believers and it's a subject that also can lead naturally to the gospel. That man is sinful, that we need a savior, that's why Jesus came. Does that make sense? And hopefully we'll get to that more at the end. So the reason that we're looking at the moral argument for God, and hopefully next week the teleological argument for God, is because these things come up in conversation. They're easy to talk with uh, other non-believers about or believers about. And so it helps us to do street-level apologetics. There are other arguments for God's existence that are super philosophical that, in, in my experience, they've never come up. I've never used them in conversation with non-believers. But this moral argument for God, I've used this probably half a dozen or a dozen times. It, it, it's something you can talk about easily. So um, why do we believe in God? Ultimately, the moral argument is one reason our sense of morality points to a lawgiver, okay? Points to a lawgiver. But first, we need to talk about at the most foundational level, we believe in God because God has made himself known to us, because God has revealed himself to us, both in his creation, that's Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, 
and also through his word. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. So God has revealed things about himself in creation, through his creation, that he's the creator, he's the sustainer of the universe, he's powerful, and so forth. Acts 14, verses 15 through 17, Romans 1, 20. And also, somebody asked me to send out my notes last week. Can you remind me? And I'll send those and these so you guys can go through this. Um, So he's revealed himself in creation and also through the human conscience. So we have a conscience as human beings. And so here God is revealing that he is the ultimate lawgiver and judge. And I'm thinking here of Romans 1, 19 and Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Talks about how we have a conscience Sometimes our conscience accuses us or even excuses us, right? How we know about God's existence, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So this is called general revelation because it's unavoidable, it's inescapable, it's available to every person, but also because it's not very specific. It doesn't tell us a a great deal of detail about God. The second way that God has revealed himself is much more specific This is special revelation. It comes from two sources, the Bible, the written word of God, and Jesus Christ. That's the incarnate word of God, John 1, 1. Um, in in, In those cases, through the Bible and through Jesus, God has revealed himself in a much more detailed, much more personal way. And if he didn't do this, we wouldn't know him, right? Or what we would know about God would be quite off base and also quite scary. (laughs) Like, if you just had the natural revelation to look at, uh, we would have some some trouble. So, the Bible presupposes God's existence from the very beginning, the very first line, in the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1. The Bible explains about who God is. Jesus also reveals God. This is John 1-18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. That's Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus. He has made him known. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 makes the same point. Does anybody have their Bible? Can you flip quick to Hebrews uh, 1, 1 through 3? And let's just read that real quick. So while you're turning there, um, we're going to discuss the authenticity of the Bible and um, Jesus Christ in future lectures. But for now, I just want to ground us in this foundational reason for God's existence um. Yeah. Go ahead if you have it, somebody. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Through three, through what? Yep, that's fine. Um, That's so awesome. So think, how do we know what we know? Why do we believe what we believe? The Christian faith has these two foundational pillars. God's word, the Bible, and Jesus Christ both of which reveal to us God's existence. That's the foundational reason for why we believe what we believe. Uh, And it's good to start there and not start like, hey, we believe in God because of this moral argument. (laughs) No, not ultimately, not foundationally. It's because of these other things. 
John 4.22, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Paul later, at the Areopagus, speaks to the the Greeks of their worship of the unknown God. And the thing is, is that there's a longing for us to worship that's innate in us, whether it is climate or ourselves or money or some unknown God, because we we are at heart looking for purpose, a reason for all things to cohere together, an explanation. And what we have in the pages of Scripture is a coherent presentation of the state of man, the state of the world, and why things happen. Yeah, amen. Yeah, there's a verse somewhere. You guys can look it up on Google because that's what Google's for. Um, something about God has put eternity in our hearts. Do you yes, guys? That's I, Ecclesiastes. Is it Ecclesiastes? It's a very similar thing, right? So Louis Giglio wrote a book, a little book called The Air I Breathe. This is one of those little tiny books, but it's great because in it he's just talking about exactly what you're, what you're saying. We can't escape the fact that God created us to worship. The question is never, will we worship? It's only, what are we worshiping? Does, does that make sense? So this is another, it's another maybe way to get at God, but it's connected to morality uh, loosely. So that's good. You're absolutely right. Okay, so the moral argument. Um, let me look here. All right. Okay, let's look at this. The moral argument is going to connect now uh, God's revelation of himself through the human conscience as lawgiver and judge with the revelation of his will in his word, the Bible. So in giving us a conscience, God made us moral beings, not just rational beings. In other words... All of us as human beings, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we have a sense of right and wrong. Talk to anybody. It's not really a question of of is there a right or wrong. It's what is it, right? But there is a sense in which we believe in a right and wrong. So it's not just the created world around us that points us to God as our creator, sustainer, designer. That's like the teleological Argument. We'll talk about that next week. It's also the conscience within us that points us to God as our lawgiver, our standard, our judge. That's in us. This is why we can make some of the, this, this argument. Romans 2.15 says this of the Gentiles. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So we have this sense of right and wrong even though our conscience is tainted by the fall, by sin. Does it make sense? This this is what Paul is driving at here. Uh, Sometimes their conscience accuses them. Sometimes their conscience excuses them. This is because sin has screwed everything up. I'm trying to talk about total depravity the other day with the kids and explain how total depravity means not that you're as bad as you could be, but that every part of you is tainted by sin. So your mind, your ability to think and reason, your heart, your desires, the things that you want, the things that you go for, your will, uh, all of that is tainted by sin. 
Now, the reason you're not as bad as you could be is because God in his grace is restraining evil. (laughs) Praise God. Or this place would be an absolute nightmare, right? Um, But that sin, our sin, the fall, has tainted our conscience, our ability to distinguish between right and wrong. But nevertheless, we still have a conscience. Even Even if our conscience malfunctions because of Sin, the conscience still bears witness to the fact that deep down we know that some things are right and some things are wrong. We know that. Now, again, human beings, because of our sinfulness, suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We don't want to to go there. Now, um, evil cannot exist unless there is some standard of good. Something can't be wrong unless it violates a standard of what is right. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a standard, if there is no such thing as good, then you lose the idea, a standard, an objective standard of good, then you lose the idea of good and evil entirely. So I like, this this is like, we can jam on this for just a second. Hopefully this will be helpful. Uh, I don't know if it will or not. I have a little video that I want to play that summarizes the moral argument for God really well, but we won't be doing that until next week when I can get the video stuff set up. Okay. Uh, Real quick. This line. Crooked or straight? Crooked. Crooked. Okay. Uh, Well done. Depends on which segment you look at. The whole thing from here to here. There's always somebody. Yeah, and it's always here. I've heard that so many times, and I'm always like, yes. The ent- I, the ent- I know you did. Listen, we will pray for you. Okay. Um, now this line, right here. More crooked. crooked or straight? Even more crooked. Yeah, more crooked, right? So we know um, this pen is terrible. We know that uh, this line is is crooked, and we know that this line this this line is more crooked than this line. Correct. Right. Okay. Now the question is, how do you know that? You count the number of turns, and it's it's uh, visually clear, qualitatively so, and probably quantitatively so, that if you were to count the number of turns. The one, the line on the right has more turns than the line on the left. And if crookedness is defined by deviation from that which is straight, that is more crooked than the other. See, you got there in the end, end, brother. You <laughs> got there in the end. Can somebody make make that simple? Could someone say that more direct? Well, Avi. We know they're crooked because we know what a straight line looks like. Boom! <laughs> Just right, right to the point. All right, let me try. I'll try my best. Oh, it's terrible. That's less crooked than the other two, though. Imagine that this is a perfectly straight line with me. Man, that's terrible. It's like so crooked. That's terrible. All right, that's a little bit better. All right, here's the thing. Here's what you did when, when I asked, is this line crooked or straight? You automatically, without even thinking about it, compared it in your mind to this. You compared it to a straight line. And you said, no, that's crooked. I know it's crooked because I know what straight is. The same thing is, it's exactly the same thing in the moral realm. 
Is this action good or evil? Is it right or wrong? Is it crooked? Meaning morally wrong? Well, it's, we know it's crooked. How do you know it's crooked? The only way you know is by comparing it to a standard of what is right, of what is good, objectively. If this line does not exist in actual fact, you have no way of saying if this is good or not. None. The, the existence of a moral good or a moral evil is dependent on a standard, right? Now... We also know that this line is more crooked than this line. Why? Because, like Dan was saying, it deviates even further from what is straight. This also helps us understand something about morality. We can not only judge what is right and wrong, but we can distinguish between something that is more right or more wrong. If you lose the standard, not only do you lose what's right and wrong, you lose any ability to make progress. Mm -hmm. Because what are you progressing to? You need a reference point in order to know whether or not what you're doing is right or wrong, or whether or not you're getting more evil or more good. Owen? You also need the same reference point from both. Because if the first one had a line that was going that way, and the second one you were comparing it to the line you just drew, the first one would still be farther from the standard. Yeah, two different lines. Yeah, so the standard itself has to be objective, right? You can't be changing standards all the time. If you change your standard all the time, then really you don't have a standard, <laughs> right? Um, okay, so the idea here... Oh, I dropped the thing that we don't know what it is. Um, why did I draw that little picture? I, I love that little picture. Because you can be anywhere. You just need a napkin and a pen, and you can draw that for people. I've probably have d gone through that little demonstration ten times with people at the pharmacy, at restaurants, whatever. It's so easy. It's so quick to get at this idea of morality, the need for a standard, etc., etc. Now. With that in mind, I want to try to walk us through what is this moral argument for God. It begins with our sense of right and wrong, good and evil, our moral impulse and sense of justice. And it argues that there must be a God who is the source of right and wrong and who will someday mete out justice to people. In other words, where does the line come from? The line must come from God. Why? Because the standard has to exist outside of us. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, let me summarize the argument briefly, and then we'll walk through it a little bit more in depth. So, brief summary of the moral argument. Our, our sense of morality, right and wrong, points us to a lawgiver. That's one sentence. Here's the argument in brief. Basic premise. It runs like this. Number one, if God does not exist then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Second, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, conclusion, God must exist. So let's walk through some of these. these are, this, is a, this is a logical argument. Two premises and a conclusion. If the two premises are right, the conclusion is right. Okay, I'll read them again. If God does not exist then objective moral values and duties do not exist. 
Second, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God must exist. All right, so arguing for premise number one. First premise, if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values and duties don't exist. Okay. We can't account for objective morality, right and wrong, apart from the existence of God. That's what the premise is arguing for. Without God, what are we left with? We must say that the world, on the atheistic view, without God is strictly materialistic. And I don't mean like buying stuff. I mean that the only thing that exists is the material. Does does it make sense? Yes. Okay. That the universe is just matter in motion. We, We as humans are products of blind, random processes. We're just stardust that's bumping into each other. That's all we are. If, 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 natural selection and random mutation, evolution, if that's correct, that means that humans are nothing more than animals. That's all that we are. We have no obligation to other people whatsoever. That's the logical conclusion of people who hold to a neo-Darwinistic view of, of life. So Richard Dawkins said this. He said, and I, at least I'm thankful that he's consistent with his worldview. So this is what he says. He says, there is at bottom no purpose, no design, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. Now, thank you, at least, for being intellectually honest with your position, right? I mean, if you hold to a materialistic worldview that all that exists is matter— that God isn't in the picture, right? That is what we're left with. No purpose, no design, no good, no evil, just blind, pitiless indifference. Now, the rub with that is nobody lives that way. Nobody can actually live like that is true. We go against that all the time, even Dawkins himself. So he was ticked that that uh, Jeff Skilling from Enron pronounced that his inspiration was The Selfish Gene, which was a book by Dawkins himself. He's like, wait a minute, you're using me to do something bad. I don't like that, right? No one likes this. No one lives like this. And we're going to come back to that when we talk about premise number two. So just hold that in your mind for a second. But essentially, apart from God, each individual person or culture decides what they deem is right or wrong for themselves, This is moral relativism. It's subjective. It's not objective. So we have to be, you're you're emphasizing the moral aspect. And so the the challenge as we we advance through this argument is where is the border between the material and the moral? You know, laws that through experimentation and repeatability, we can say this is true objectively so because it's repeatable what have you materialists would not would not argue against that and so then to get into okay where is the delineation between the physical and the moral because as we try to advance the the moral argument the materialists will simply just move that line and we have to force them to stay within their own borders in order to be able to demonstrate the fallacy of it 
know what I'm saying? No, I'm just trying to figure out how a materialist would move the line. Because on the materialistic view, yes, they're going to want something that's you know measurable and repeatable, but that's the scientific method. You can't do that with morality. They're going to speak to consensus. Yeah, we'll get to that objection in a minute. So yeah, yes, we'll get there. Um, let's keep going on this, and then we'll get to that point. So again, no God, that means no objective standard. Morality is subjective. It's whatever you want. Whatever's right for you is right for you, but it might not be right for me. That's what we're left with. Every individual person or culture, which we'll, we'll talk about, decides. In the end, what that means is either majority or might makes right at the end of the day. The, the, the majority of people decide or the, whoever's the strongest decides. And then we're also left with autonomy, which is we're a law to ourselves. We just choose to believe and follow whatever we think. There's no objective standard then to which we can appeal that transcends humanity itself. That's the key. That's the key. Because we're going to see that people want to appeal to that and they do it all the time. They're, they're everywhere contradicting themselves. They cannot actually live like this. Well, yes, because it leads to chaos. It, it, it's total chaos. And so people, like you were saying, the, the disconnect between reality uh, and the other is the, the, the concept. It leads to total chaos. And so people realize in order to live and function, they have to have some kind of order. There has to be some kind of government in place. Yeah. So then that's where the... Leading, you know, the consensus comes in and moving the line because they can't live that way. Yeah, it doesn't just lead to chaos, though. It's also, it leads to inconvenience, <laughs> like on a personal level. Because yeah. I could haul off and punch Dan in the face and he wouldn't be able to say that I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Or I could steal his car, right? Mm -hmm. So that's very inconvenient. <laughs> this is why nobody actually lives this way. Nobody actually thinks this is true. Or at least they don't, they don't live like it's true. It's, we are. It's, We're seeing it from carjackings and violence through lack of uh, justice. And no, but the carjacker isn't going to like it if you jack his car. No. The carjacker himself knows that carjacking is wrong. What I'm saying is, is that I'm not, it's not to say that people don't do evil. It's that the same people who do evil know that they're doing evil yes. and don't like it when other people do evil to them. Yes. Like the carjacker is going to be ticked if his car gets jacked. But they'll have That's advocates. the irony of it. They'll have advocates who are unaffected by that who make that argument hard to excuse it. Sure, but that doesn't, doesn't, that doesn't yeah, change the fact. The yeah. 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 Okay, so objective right and wrong can't arise from a collective community or culture. So this goes to what Dan was saying just a moment ago. Because most of the time when you bring up the moral argument for God, when you start talking about objective morality... People will very quickly say, no, it's not because of God. It's because society has created our idea of what is good and bad. So you just have to anticipate that this is going to be how they respond. But all they've done is move it one level back. Okay, so you've moved from the individual to a society. But the same thing still holds, and we can immediately see why it holds when we try to compare two different societies. So, for example, America versus Nazism or something. Now, 
we're not, please don't hear me say that America is like perfect or whatever. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the issue. What we're doing now, though, is we're comparing two societies, two different understandings of what's right and wrong, and we're saying, well, which one of these is better? Which is less perfect. Which is less crooked. We're, already, we're going back to the line example. Mm-hmm. So even on the societal level, you're still having to appeal to a standard that exists outside of us, yeah. outside of humanity, outside of what we have come up with. Otherwise, you can't judge between the two. You can't say, without that objective standard that exists outside of us as humans, you can't say, well, Nazism is worse than the American culture. Or whatever, you can't make that argument because who are you to say? <laughs> it's just your preference. It's just your opinion. All right. So, objective morality then is grounded in God's character. It's who He is. It's revealed in God's Word, what He said about Himself, and what He has declared based on His character to be good and evil. Uh, so again, I'll just say, without an objective standard that transcends humanity, you can't condemn evil, you can't praise good, you can't evaluate right and wrong, and you can't measure progress towards good. Now let's talk about the second premise. We've already been nibbling around this. Objective moral values and duties do exist. This one's a little bit easier, I think, because everybody actually believes this. You just have to point it out. So here I'm really dependent on... Uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. How many of you guys have read this? Raise your hand. Excellent. This is a great book. It's in my top five for Christians to read. You got to read this book. True Confession, my top five list of Christian books has about 30 books in it. Um, but this this is in the list of top five, which stretches much further than five. The first five chapters of this book has probably the best summation of the moral argument for God. Lewis does a fantastic job of putting this into everyday language that we can understand with illustrations. I would encourage you to read it. It's fantastic. I'm going to show a five-minute video next week when we do the review portion. That is another great summary. But I just I want you to be able to see the little cartoons on the screen because it's not as fun. My kids assure me uh, it's not as fun without the cartoons. So, All right, arguing for premise number two. Um, that objective moral values do exist. That there are things that we consider to be objectively wrong. Um, When we say, this is Lewis here, when we say things like, hey, that's my seat, I was there first, get out of my seat. Or when we say things like, hey, give me a piece of your orange, I gave you some of mine, you promised. We're appealing to a standard of behavior that we expect other people to know about. This objective thing. Um, And he talks about how educated and uneducated people say things like this every day, both children and adults. In order to say that moral good and evil don't exist, right? So, So the premise is objective moral values and duties do exist. To contradict that premise, you have to say that there is no such thing as evil. But everybody knows that there are, and agrees that certain things are evil. Like raping little children is evil. Murder is evil, objectively. It's wrong. Always wrong. It's always going to be wrong. Everywhere wrong. All across cultures. But we 
we don't just see it in the extreme. We see it in these little examples like, hey, that's not fair. <laughs> right? When we complain about things like this, we're, we're not saying, hey, your behavior doesn't happen to please me. We're appealing to some law, some rule, some sense of fair play or morality that is recognized by everybody that we expect the other person to know about. And we don't say, well, forget your standard. Everybody knows it exists. Instead, what we do is we make excuses for why we haven't actually violated the standard. Like when we're making excuses for our behavior, well, I got angry with my kids because I was tired and so forth. What are we actually trying to do? We're trying to escape what we know is real. We know that we've screwed up. We've broken the standard. We're not arguing that the standard doesn't exist. We're trying to figure out a way to give, give a reason for, for why it was okay for us to do what we did in that circumstance. All of this is showing that we believe there is such a thing as objective right and wrong. Um, when we argue with people, we're trying to show people that they're in the wrong. But there's no point in doing that unless there is something that's called right and wrong to begin with. Amen. So the law has to do with morality has to do with what ought to happen in a given situation like what ought to take place and somehow everybody has a sense of it this is our conscience we know that people agree there's a moral absolute even when they say that they don't like even Dawkins himself will say things are wrong even though he says there is no such thing as evil or good nobody actually lives like this. And they, if they try to say that they do, they go back on it pretty quickly. It's like the carjacking guy who doesn't want his car to be jacked, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't, even he knows, right? So second, everybody knows that we break this moral law, this standard of right and wrong. We all know it. We know that we've broken it. And we make excuses for our bad behavior all the time. I broke my promise because I was super busy and I wouldn't have promised if I knew how busy I was, blah, blah, blah. The point here isn't whether or not our excuses are good, like whether or not it's a valid excuse. That's not the point. The point is, is that those excuses are proof of how much we actually believe in this standard of right and wrong. Um, okay, so objective moral values and duties exist. We know this. And we show that we believe this in all of our calls for fairness, our condemnation of certain actions as evil. But objective mor morality requires the existence of God. Therefore, God exists. That's the moral argument. Okay, objections. Objections to this. First, isn't the moral law just, and the rule of right or wrong, isn't that just herd instinct? Isn't that just our instincts kicking in? No. Uh, an example shows that this is not the case. Say somebody's in danger and they need help, right? Someone's in danger, they need help. You're going to have two instincts. One is a desire to help based on your herd instinct. And the other is a desire to keep out of danger based on an instinct for self-preservation. But the feeling or notion that we ought to help, whether we want to or not, is something else. That's not an instinct. There's this third thing telling you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. And the thing that judges between the two instincts and tells you that you what you ought to do, that's something else. That's the moral law. This is coming from Lewis, right? 
It's the line again. We're back to the line. <laughs> Second, isn't this moral law thing just what society has created? Right? We've already addressed this. This is the only way to assess the difference between the two different societies. Um, yeah, Lewis says it this way. He says, if no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense of preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. Um, <laughs> he has this. I'm going to read this because um, I think this is helpful. I taught this before, and I, I, I didn't bring this up, but I think it might be helpful. This is also from Lewis. This is not my brilliance, but his. Don't get hung up on differences of facts, which are not differences of morality. We may say something like, well, hundreds of years ago, people were putting witches to death. But that's not a difference in morality. It's a difference in belief about the facts. If we really believed that there were witches that were cursing people and causing people to go mad and kill their neighbors, then that would deserve the death penalty. The advance is simply to see and to know that such creatures don't, in fact, exist. It's a different about facts. We're not more humane for stopping to put out mouse traps if our reason for doing so is that we don't think that there are any mice in the house. Do you understand the difference? It's not that morality changed at all. It's that those witches don't exist. Does that make sense? All right. Couple things, last couple things, and then we'll talk about how does this point to the gospel. Uh, we need to avoid a confusion that this means that all religious people are good. That's not what we're arguing at all. We need to avoid another confusion that you have to be religious to be a person who does good things. Right? So you may do some, some good act, right? You don't have to believe in God for that. But the fact that there exists such a thing as good requires God's existence, whether you believe in him or not. And another thing, uh, another confusion or a red herring is that, hey, religious people do bad things too. Like, yeah, we're not arguing that religious people don't do bad things. We're arguing that the fact that there is good and bad points us to a lawgiver, points us to God. All right, last thing, and then I'll, we'll open this up for questions. Um, how do we get to the gospel from this? I was thinking about this today. Um, and I'm going to read a, a couple of pages from Lewis's book here in a minute. But we know that we break God's law. At the bottom, we know there's a standard of right and wrong. All people do. And we know that we've broken it. The issue is that we're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So once we know that there is a moral law and a lawgiver, right, we want to establish a person's failure to keep that law, to show that they stand guilty before God. When you look at like Ray's comfort, Ray Comfort's um, method of evangelism, I don't know if you've ever seen him do that. That's what he does. He gives them the law knowing, like, why does he do that? He does it because he knows that they know. They know what right and wrong is, right? And so he establishes their guilt before God by pointing them to the law to show uh, you're a murderer, you're a liar, you're a thief, you're a fornicator. <laughs> you know, you're, it's like, now what? Grace, grace is meaningless without the knowledge of sin. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. Once we show that they're guilty, we move to God's plan for dealing with man's sinfulness through Jesus Christ. That's how we get 
to the gospel. I'm going to read a little bit from, from Mere Christianity to try to put a little button on this if we can. Hopefully this will help. The moral law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It's as hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it doesn't seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. It's no use at at this stage saying, well, what you mean by a good God is a God who can forgive. Lewis is like, you're going too quickly. Only a person can forgive, and we've not gotten that far yet of a personal God. Only, we've only, this argument only takes us to the point of there is a God who exists behind the moral law. All right. Then he goes on and he says, it's no use either of saying that there is a God of the sort that an uh, an impersonal absolute goodness, if you don't like him and you're not going to bother about him. The trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. In other words, we're on God's side, this, this God, in agreeing that there are certain things that are wrong. Now, you may want him to make an exception in your own case to let you off this one time, but you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, then he can't be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. This is the terrible fix that we're in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, think objective moral truth, then all of our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is, we make ourselves enemies to that goodness every day. And we're not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He's also the supreme terror, the thing that we most need and the thing that we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They're only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way that you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Now, my third point, when he gets down to it, he says... um, Christianity does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts that I have been describing, this idea of the moral argument. He says, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they've done anything to repent of and who don't feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law that you have been, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know how sick you are, you will listen to the doctor. When you've realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand that the, what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating good and loving it. And they offer an explanation of how God can be this person behind the moral law And yet, and they tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. 
It's an old story, and if you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. All I'm doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the question which Christianity claims to answer, and they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think is true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay that I have been describing. And it's no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through the dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, the comfort is the one thing you can't get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you'll get neither. Um, So Lewis is saying, look, if you don't understand this, Christianity Christianity has nothing to say to the person who doesn't believe in a moral good, right? But at bottom, everybody does. Everybody does. And it's not that hard to show that they do. Then once you do, you show that they've broken that law and that they stand guilty before this God. Now Christianity begins to make sense. Christianity has something to say. The gospel makes sense. Okay, now I'm going to open this up to questions and we can jam. We've got about 10 more minutes. I know that was fast. Go. Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I was in a conversation with somebody about the conscience and the basic sense of morality without Christianity. Yeah. So it, it's, I just want to make sure it's, it's correct, isn't it, that we are born with a conscience. We have a conscience. Yeah, because but, God made us moral beings, not just rational ones. Yeah, but that, our, I don't know the right way to say this, but that until we are saved, the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our conscience is functioning, but it's not really fully awakened. Sure, yeah, you can say it that way. And, and it's not like once you become a Christian, you now all of a sudden have a perfect conscience. Right. Right? Correct. I mean, sanctification is growth and understanding and knowing the truth and believing the truth and having our conscience renewed, our minds renewed, right? Our desires renewed yes. according to the truth. Yes. But the fact that you're saying God created us with a conscience and our conscience is broken, yeah. not destroyed completely, right? Right. right? But broken, yeah, that's true for so sure. Tied to that then is the idea of, and you read the scripture verse, I have to get the reference, but early on that um, his law is written in our hearts. And there's another place where it's speaking of that in a covenantal way where God is speaking to his people. Yeah. But that's not the state. It's not the same. Yeah, it's not the same, even though it's using the same word. Yeah, different different context, different different truth. Okay. Yeah. So when... when, um, when Jeremiah, it's Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about God writing his word on our hearts. It's very specific, right? Mm-hmm. So different, different context, yes. Thanks. Good. Angie, you had a question too? Um, just, my brain is moving, uh, my processor is a little slow this morning. <laughs> um, but it seems to me that this concept that we're talking about really, like one of the first things that seems to come up when you're talking of, of 
when people phrase the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's like two sides of the same coin in that you've taken the their problem of evil, like, well, if a good God exists, or if God exists, why does he allow this evil? Yep. And flipped that argument right on its head and said, well, if evil exists and you can say that it's evil, yeah. then that shows that there is a God. Correct. And that he's good. Yes. Yes, that's 100% correct. So when it comes, when we'll talk, we're going to have a whole lecture on the problem of evil. But you're 100% correct in the sense that the problem of evil cuts both ways. And I think it's a bigger problem for the atheist than it is for the Christian. And I'll, I'll tip my hands now before we get to that lecture on the problem of evil. I don't take the free will approach in answering the problem of evil. I give a, a theistic answer to that. Like, Christians ex can explain why evil exists. And it's, it's not because God created us with a free will. I don't think that's the best answer. I think it's because of the fall. Um, so, anyway. But yes, the, at the point you're making is true, right? So, we, we have sort of work to do in describing why evil exists, etc., etc. But so do they, Right? And so, yes, it does cut both directions, and you do put it. This is like a, you know, we talked about offensive and defensive apologetics, right? Now we're asking, well, why would you, put it, put it in, in conversational language, right? Why are you complaining about evil? Why does that even bother you? Right. You're where, where, how do you, what do you think is, like, what's evil? And where do you get the concept? Why does it bother you? I, I believe in e I can we have answers for that right but but ask them yeah Dan you wanted to add something yeah well a couple couple thoughts um, not only as we go down the the slide of Romans one and two uh, we begin to be so twisted that we begin to call evil good and good evil yeah and we can see examples of that and so. Um, you know why? Why is there even an argument for good and evil at a, at, at a social level? Now, with regard to the, the lines to extend that illustration, so the notion of, of biblical Christianity is somehow that crooked line is made straight, but the line cannot make itself straight. Therefore, an outside agent from a higher dimension needs to come in and overlay that line, say, oh, I don't know, with a string. And then that outside agent can then pull it and make it perfectly straight. That's grace. Has nothing to do with the line. The line was as crooked as it always was, but that outside agent was able to make that straight. Yeah. Now, the challenge that we have then is our memories remind us of how crooked we are, right? And so, and God continues to call us to remember what Christ has done, right? Because those, those who fall back into the crookedness have forgotten what Christ has done, right? So this is well, you can think about it in two ways, right? So there's, the, okay, I mean, I don't want to, every analogy breaks down at some point, so. I'd be a pretty strong one, though. I want to be careful not to press it too far. In justification, it's as if God is saying, I declare you to be straight. You're righteous in Christ. It's his righteousness, not ours, right? Mm -hmm. 
in it, in sanctification, it's God working to take a crooked line and actually make us straight. Right. Hammering away at the line. Renewing, right. Renewing our mind, bringing discipline into our lives, teaching us in his word. And, he's, and, and so sanctification, you can think of it as the process of that crooked line getting more and more and more and more straight. But we're never going to be actually straight perfectly until we get to glorification when God's going to make us all perfectly straight. No sin anymore whatsoever, right? Um, so, I mean, obviously, one illustration can't teach everything. But if you're going to try to put it in those terms, God is in the process of taking us. Now, that might be helpful when we're talking to someone about this and we say, yeah, but you Christians, you screw up all the time. You, you, you claim you have this standard, but you can't keep it. And we should just say, yeah, yeah. yeah. you're right, like 100%. Like, we're just as guilty as you. We're, we're just in, as in great a need as you. Like, I'm not claiming to be perfect, right? Um, yeah. There's this scene in, in the movie Luther where Luther's preaching, and uh, Luther says something like, if, if the devil throws your sins in your face and says you deserve death and hell, tell him, what of it? I agree that I deserve death and hell, but I know one who suffered and paid satisfaction in my, on my behalf, right? His name is Jesus Christ, and where he is, there I shall be also. It's just like this goosebump moment in the movie. I just love it. Because he's preaching the gospel, right? So none of this is to say that, like, but that's the red herring that people... That is a red herring. You just have to recognize it for what it is. It's a in, distraction from the topic. In a very real sense, in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, we would say liberty, and that is the knowledge and the power to do as one ought, not as one wants. Yeah. We confuse the two. And so, even though Romans 7, I can't do it, yeah. I'm incapable of doing it. I know what the ought is. Yeah. And that's because the Spirit is present. Yeah. God is omnipresent. Yeah, praise God that He gives us the power. That's so good. All right, we got to pray. Sorry, we don't have more time for questions. If you think of questions later, bring them with you next week, and we'll talk about it, okay? In our review section. All right. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you uh, today that you have... You have given a moral law, an objective standard of right and wrong, and you've revealed it to us in the Word, the Bible, and in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is based on your character and who you are, and therefore it doesn't change and exists quite outside of ourselves. But we thank you um, that this is one of the ways that you have um, given proof of your existence and, and you point to yourself God, we want to thank you and praise you um, for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, because we do recognize we've broken your law, that we stand guilty, justly condemned. But in Christ, our sins are paid, and there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we just praise you, and we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we see in our culture a great breakdown in morality and an abandoning of the standard of, of truth and righteousness. We pray, God, that you would be at work to bring uh, people to faith in Christ and that you would restore uh, morality. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to be faithful in sharing the gospel uh, and bringing people uh, to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that's your work and our part is just to be faithful in sharing the truth. So we ask and pray that you would help us to do that. Mm -hmm. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you.